This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back once again, all good people all over the world. Laszlo Montgomery here with part three of what once was a short 20-minute standalone episode published in June 2010 that was later fortified into an award-winning two-part series that looked at the rise and fall of the chin. And now, what I hope will be its final incarnation, it is a three-part series that I will quietly and surreptitiously squeeze into the back catalog, replacing that two-parter. And I'm going to have to number this one as CHP episode 158B, first time in CHP history, CHP 159 already being taken by one of my favorite episodes, I might add. In popular Chinese history, it seems all the glory and attention goes to Ying Zheng, the founder of the Qin Dynasty. He's the name we remember, but in parts one and two, I wanted to show you, as great as he was perhaps, his ancestors sure made it easy for him. And all the long-lasting achievements he's credited with were actually built from the ground up, going back many generations to 771 BC, when the Zhou Dynasty kings were overwhelmed by invaders from the north, and Duke Xiang, Qin Xiang Gong, he came to the rescue and helped the Ji family and their Zhou Dynasty to reconstitute themselves in Luoyang and live on as a dynasty for five more centuries. Duke Xiang's son, Duke Wen, was even more helpful, and for his assistance at such Desperate times as the mid-8th century BC, the House of Qin, led by the Ying family, were able to establish their toehold in the emerging Chinese polity that, by their time, was already more than a thousand years old. And for this reason, those ancient Huaxia people who called themselves the son of the Yellow Emperor, they weren't so sure they liked these Nouveau Chinese, these Arivis who were inching their way eastward in the direction of the Yellow River Valley and Central Plain, the birthplace of Chinese civilization. One by one, the Qin were blessed with the good fortune of strong rulers and brilliant advisors who instituted game-changing reforms. Duke Mu, Duke Xiao, Shangyang, King Huiwen, King Zhaoxiang, and Fan Ju. They drew up the plans and built the foundation for the state of Qin to such an extent that when Ying Zheng came along in 247 BC, all he did was finish off what was already mostly built. One of the first things Ying Zheng said was, I'm not a king anymore. I'm an emperor. And he chose the Chinese word Huangdi for his title. This came from the San Huang Wu Di, the three sovereigns and five emperors. They were featured in CHP episode 60 and are called the mythical founders of China. And Qin Shi Huang, Shi Huang, means first emperor. And this Qin emperor, the former king Ying Zheng, well, he wasn't going to make the same mistake that Zhou Dynasty co-founder King Wu made. No handing out land and titles to all the nobles that they could pass on to their progeny. He had to have it all. King Wu of Zhou back in 1046 BC, 
Well, he didn't have the tools at his disposal that Xin Shi Huang had 825 years later in 221. Shangyang's political reforms and Fan Zhu's military strategies had transformed the Qin state. When Qin Shi Huang took control over the Qin military, it was a force that no one in China, nor perhaps the world, could reckon with. Plus, he had at his disposal an incredibly effective bureaucracy already in place that he could rely on to govern his expanding realm. Controlling the people and mobilizing them to do whatever, whenever, was a very powerful and useful tool at his disposal. Well, Qin Shi Huang will only have 11 years to do all his great things before he up and died. But prior to declaring himself emperor in 221 BC, he had already been king of Qin for 26 years. When he declared himself the first emperor, he wasn't some new, untested ruler. He was by then at the peak of his powers. One of the first orders of business was to disarm all the armies of all the conquered states who had fallen to Qin. And as the old legend from popular Chinese history goes, all their weapons were collected from soldiers and civilians and sent to the capital, where they were melted down into these 12 jinren, or gold men each statue weighing in at 120 tons, 109,000 kilos, more or less. They weren't actually made of gold. They weren't actually made of gold. And Dong Zhuo will come along three decades later in 190 BC and melt those 12 metal colossi down again. The new Qin emperor also had to consolidate his power and tamp out any brush fires and pockets of resistance to his government. Word went out to all the aristocratic and wealthy families from Yen in the north to Chu in the south. They had to pack up and move to the Qin capital of Xianyang, where the emperor could keep watch over them. And this little part of China, Xianyang, modern-day Xi'an, where the Wei River flowed, would be the center of things in China for not only the Qin, but for the Han, Sui, and Tang dynasties as well. Ying Zheng, Qin Shi Huang, was 38 years old when he unified China in 221 BC. Even back then, that wasn't considered too old. Despite his relative youth compared to an old man, the Qin emperor had this ungovernable lust for life that became an obsession. And when he went out on these field trips to the east and to the south of his empire, he was always keeping his eyes and ears open for any hints about alchemical elixirs of life that existed in those parts. Xin Shi Huang was one of those emperors who liked to get out of the palace and take these tours of his realm and began doing that at once. By 218 BC, there had already been three close calls as far as assassins trying to kill him. We looked at one of them last episode in part two when the assassin Jing Ke from the Yen state tried to take him down with a poison dagger. Searching for these elixirs of life, just as with Ponce de Leon 17 centuries later, it became one of his defining characteristics. And wherever the Qin emperor went, he loved to climb all the sacred mountains of his new Chinese empire. And he would leave these carved stone steles that commemorated his visits and offer up prayers to the gods. Ruins of six of these steles survived into modern times. After becoming emperor, there was one thing that kept the Qin emperor up at nights. He still hadn't seized control of the Lingnan region, 
And you could learn all about this in the CHP History of Guangzhou series. Lingnan was the south of China, Guangdong, Guangxi, Hainan, and parts of northern Vietnam. Distance and topography had always been South China's most important ally in maintaining their independence from what was going on along the great waterways between the Yangtze and the Yellow River. The peoples who inhabited the southern part of China had a distinct culture that differed from what existed in the north. And these people below the Yangtze, their numbers weren't very large, in the hundreds of thousands, it's thought. And they were collectively known as the Bai Yue, the Hundred Yue. And the ones in the southernmost part of the map of China were referred to as the Nan Yue, the Southern Yue. After the Qin had taken Sichuan in 316 BC, many Nan Yue had boldly migrated there and even helped themselves to parts of Sichuan that was adjacent to their lands. Qin Shi Huang needed to bring this part of China into the empire. And to do this, he went to another of his generals who always delivered, and this was Tu Sui. Tu Sui was given half a million men and pointed in a southerly direction. The mission was clear. Conquer and bring these Bai Yue and all their southern lands into the Qin fold. And like they began doing in 316 BC in the former Ba and Shu kingdoms in Sichuan, they would take all the Qin laws and administration techniques and implement them in the south. Easier said than done. Anyone familiar with China can tell you the climate and topography of the Wei and Yellow River Valley is hardly the same as the two Guangs, Guangdong and Guangxi. By the time these half-million soldiers that were divided into five separate columns, when they got as far south as Hunan, they were already starting to realize this was a mistake and they hadn't adequately prepared for such a campaign. The Nan Yue and the Yue people in Zhejiang and Fujian had the home field advantage, and though vastly outnumbered, they fought a guerrilla war with the Qin army. This was all a new way of fighting, and the Qin weren't prepared for this kind of a fight. They took heavy losses and got bogged down in the mountains and rugged terrain, and they ended up getting beaten by the enemy of many an army, logistics and transport. And this unpreparedness heaped ruin on the Qin army. General Tu Sui and about 100,000 other Qin soldiers were killed in action during this initial campaign. The Yue of Fujian and Zhejiang will be vanquished first. But these Yue people of the south in the Lingnan region, they were not easy pushovers and in fact will not be totally subdued until the time of Han Wu Di in 111 BC. Qin Shi Huang, aside from the setbacks fighting the Nan Yue, was feeling the pressure coming from the north as well. For anything related to the Xiongnu, Qin Shi Huang mostly relied on one guy, General Meng Tian. And when we think of the mega construction projects in the north, including the Great Wall, we always think of Meng Tian. In preparation against what was probably going to be a hard-fought campaign, Meng Tian in 215 BC, along with 300,000 Qin soldiers, began repairing all these individual rammed earth walls that had been put up by the northern warring states. And these individual sections of walls were joined together by Meng Tian's army of workers. In addition to this, he also called for the construction of lookout towers. And this is where the Great Wall starts to begin to look like the Great Wall as we know it. 
It didn't stretch from Shanghai Guan to Jiayu Guan yet, but it was still quite long and massive. After Meng Tian built it, he manned it and planned his campaign against this northern nomadic menace who are going to take seemingly forever to get rid of. But General Meng Tian was successful in pushing them back and stopping the constant Xiongnu raids into Chinese territory. The Great Wall back then actually aided in the ultimate Chinese victory over the Xiongnu to get troops where they had to be quickly, just in case of any Xiongnu incursions. The so-called Qin Highway was built that not only allowed for easy transport of grain from Shandong to the capital, it also allowed for troops to be sent up north within three days so that they could be in place to put out any Xiongnu fires. One of the most remarkable and extraordinary feats of the Qin were the numbers of roads they built. There's nothing like a road to get from one place to another. 4,250 miles of roads were built during the Qin Emperor's reign, including some of those patented, jaw-dropping Chinese roads that would curve around mountainsides and were held up from underneath by wooden support beams. Ninety years before Ying Zheng became the first emperor, the Appian Way in Rome was built, and all these historic road systems were being constructed yeah, around the same time, both in Rome and in China. And China's unparalleled greatness in road construction? Well, it didn't start with Xi Jinping's One Belt, One Road project. This know-how and ability to take on these massive road and infrastructure projects went back all the way to the Warring States and Qin Dynasty. So it was really after he saw how useful the Great Wall was that Qin Shi Huang demanded a million Qin citizens serve some time building and expanding the Great Wall. 5,000 kilometers long, snaking through North China with all those amazing twists and turns up and down steep mountains from Gansu to the Hebei coast. There are actually some ruins that can be found in China of parts of the Great Wall built during this time. There's not much left of the wall that remains from the Qin or the Han periods. What you see in the China travel brochures are parts of the wall constructed during the Ming Dynasty, and in some parts, like Badaling, were rebuilt only in the last century. In 214 BC, Qin Shi Huang decided to take a second shot at defeating the Nanyue. This time he got smart. When Tu Sui and his half-million-strong army invaded the Lingnan region, their failure was primarily due to logistical problems. Moving this many troops was a logistical nightmare, not being able to cut over to any of the key rivers where they could efficiently move troops and supplies. The river of choice to go from the central part of China down to the south is the Xiangjiang. This is the great river of Hunan province. It empties into Dongting Lake, the dividing marker between Hubei and Hunan. The only problem with this river, as far as Qin Shi Huang was concerned, was that it only got him as far as about Guilin in Guangxi province, and then that was it. He was too far west of where he needed to be. If he could only find some way to connect the Lijiang, the Li River, to the Xiang, well, if he could only do that, it would be a cinch to use the Li as a direct link to the Pearl River. And once he arrived at the Pearl River, the army could just sail right into the heart of Guangdong province and take it. The challenge was how to get from the Xiang River to the Li. Those two rivers were separated by a distance of between 30 to 40 miles. Li Bing 
did it before in the Min River Valley at Duqiangyan, and Li Bing's son, Zheng Guo, did it once more when he connected the Jing and Luo Rivers. And now came this third and final great irrigation project of the Qin, the Lingqu, or Ling Canal. Qin engineers and workers built this canal in record time. It wasn't the straightest route. It took a lot of twists and turns, but once engineer Shi Lu built the Lingqu, it was the final piece to the navigation puzzle that connected the Yangtze and Pearl River via the Xiang and Li Rivers. And the next time Qin Shi Huang sent his forces down south, things played out a little differently. This time they knew what to expect, and now they had the Lingqu Canal, which made all the difference. And like a lot of things from China's ancient times, that canal is still around today and in use. It runs parallel to the 322 Guodao, the 322 National Highway. Once the South was safely joined together with the rest of the Qin emperors expanding unified land, China stretched from pretty much the Great Wall all the way down south to practically where Stanley Market in Hong Kong is today. As Qin Shi Huang was spreading himself out all over the new united Chinese nation, all kinds of incentives were offered to pioneers of the Central Plain who were willing to go out and populate these newly conquered lands in the south and southwest. The featured stimulus was a 12-year exemption from the dreaded forced labor service. I mean, 12 years of voluntary forced labor? Considering the average 3rd century B.C. life expectancy being what it was, well, 12 years could be a half to a third of one's adult life. Nobody was fond of the Qin Emperor's corvée. It wasn't anything like a, a two-year stint in the army. Right after the South was tamed and brought into the Qin Empire, the legendary burning of the books episode went down. This was in 213 B.C. Qin Shi Huang's prime minister and right-hand man, Li Si, is going to teach these Confucianists a lesson. As one of the legends went, there were one too many Confucian scholars at the Qin court who kept bitching and moaning about the present times and couldn't hearken back enough to the good old days during the Zhou. Qin Shi Huang had had enough of hearing all that, and he allowed Li Si to suppress all written works that weren't approved by the state. Again, this is all legend, and a lot of hay has been made about it, particularly in popular Chinese history. Let me quote from the Venerable Francis Wood's neat little book, The First Emperor of China, where she quotes Li Si, quote, If anyone who is not a court scholar dares to keep the ancient songs, historical records, or writings from the hundred schools, these should be confiscated and burned by the provincial governor and army commander. Those who, in conversation, dare to quote the old songs and records should be publicly executed, and those who use old precedents to oppose the new order should have their families wiped out, and officers who know of such cases but fail to report them should be punished in the same way. If 30 days after the issuing of this order, the owners of these books still have not had them destroyed, they should have their faces tattooed, and be condemned to hard labor at the Great Wall. The only books which need not be destroyed are those dealing in medicine, divination, and agriculture. End quote. A lot is made of this burning the books thing. Qin Shi Huang is credited with this act, but it was all Li Si's idea. Did it really happen? Was there a 
big bonfire? It's hard to tell, except this wasn't the last time an emperor came down hard on the Jishifunzi, or the intellectuals. Huizong, he did it in the Song. Kublai Khan did it too during the Yuan. And let's not forget the Qianlong Emperor during the Qing. He gave us the Siku Shu, the Four Treasures, the greatest compilation of knowledge to date. But he probably burned just as many books as he saved in this massive work he called for. So when we talk about burning books, shoot, we give Qin Shi Huang all the glory. Let me quote uh, from Francis Wood again. Quote, The Qianlong Emperor's ruthless collection of books, flagrant disregard for the rights of private ownership, and brutal punishment of scholars and bibliophiles resulted in the destruction or substantial alteration of 2,665 works and the death and dismemberment of over a hundred scholars, a far more systematic expunging of records than the first emperor's alleged burning of the books and burial of scholars. End quote. The following year, 212 B.C., saw the so-called burying of the scholars. All those intellectuals who didn't sign up for this book-burning campaign were buried alive. This is another one of those who-knows kinds of things to make the Qin emperor out to be this tyrannical ruler. Francis Wood said, quote, Whilst it seems clear that the first emperor and his counselors sought to eliminate opposition, particularly scholarly opposition spread by rumor, it seems likely that the burning of the books and the burying of the scholars attributed to the first emperor and contributing hugely to his posthumous reputation for cruelty and megalomania were greatly exaggerated, end quote. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I told you the Qin Emperor used to make these imperial tours of the land, and it was on one of these tours that he died suddenly. In 210 BC, he had set out to a place called the Island of the Immortals, Someone in his coterie of alchemists had filled the emperor's head with ideas about these mythical places where magical elixirs of life were to be found. He had done this before in 219 and again in 215 BC, sending alchemists out to search for these alchemical concoctions that would allow him to live forever. He apparently believed strongly in this and became consumed with this notion of potential immortality once he had the whole country unified under his control. The alchemists close to the Qin court must have been having a field day with the first emperor. It's said that he died from consuming too much cinnabar. Cinnabar is also known as mercury sulfide. It's the most common ore where you could find mercury. The bright red color of the crystals have been used as a pigment in many civilizations since Neolithic times, but it was also used heavily by alchemists to extract mercury, one of the key substances in all these concoctions being fed to Qin Shi Huang. Go give a listen to the two-part series that looked at the history of Chinese alchemy. That's uh, CHP episodes 299 and 300, uh, if you're interested to learn more. 
Anyway, Qin Shi Huang made it to the so-called Island of the Immortals, or at least he thought he did. And according to the other great legend, the secret elixir that he sought out was guarded by a huge fish. As Sima Qian tells it, the emperor shot and killed a rather large fish with a crossbow. It was a fish, but it wasn't the fish that guarded the elixir. And he never got to tell anyone his fish tale. Nor was the first Qin emperor ever able to get his hands on that elixir of immortality. He died and then began one of the strangest series of events in all of Chinese history. The first emperor's entourage included his chancellor and right-hand man, Li Si, and one of the palace eunuchs named Zhao Gao. In terms of outrageousness, Zhao Gao was a little reminiscent of Lao Ai, mentioned uh, last time in part two. Also present was the emperor's 18th and youngest son, not the crown prince, and this son was named Ying Hu Hai. And as we'll see, he ends up becoming the second Qin emperor. Qin Arshir. But as I said, he wasn't supposed to be the emperor. The one who was supposed to be the next emperor, the crown prince, was named Ying Fu Su. And when Qin Shi Huang passed so suddenly, the crown prince was up north, assisting General Meng Tian near the Great Wall. Meng Tian and Zhao Gao were not good friends, and Fu Su was very close to Meng Tian, and the odds that General Meng would become Fu Su's right-hand man that was a pretty good bet. So with the Qin Emperor dead, that drastically changed the dynamic, and Zhao Gao knew he didn't have a bright future if all went according to the deceased Emperor's wishes. There was no love lost between Zhao Gao, Li Si, and General Meng Tian. But one thing Zhao Gao had going for him was that he was quite close to Hu Hai, and he knew he'd fare much better under this royal son than under the crown prince Fu Su. Qin Shi Huang, as he lay dying at Da Pingtai village to the northeast of Tangshan in Hebei province, he sent a letter to Fu Su to tell him of the situation and to get back to Xianyang ASAP and prepare for the funeral and to take over the rulership of the empire. Remember, Qin Shi Huang had been building that megalopolis of a mausoleum practically since the day he became emperor. So you can imagine as far as the funeral was concerned and his never-ending quest for life eternal. Now, he had some big plans to go out in style. That letter, of course, was never delivered to Fu Su, and as the famous story goes, as told by Sima Qian himself, Zhao Gao conspired with Li Si to take the emperor's seal, forge a letter to both General Meng Tian and Fu Su, commanding them to commit suicide, which, surprisingly, they did and this left things open for Hu Hai to be named as the next emperor. Then, as the royal entourage made its way back to Xianyang in order to cover up the stench of the emperor's rotting corpse, this was in September, Li Su had a carriage of dried fish placed before and after the emperor's carriage. Then two months later, when they got back to the capital, the ruse was continued, and no one was the wiser. It was a perfectly executed coup d'etat. And then at the most favorable moment for the conspirators, when everything was practically a fait accompli, the emperor's death was announced. Once the first emperor was gone, everything fell apart quickly. He died on September 10, 210 BC. And from September 210 to December 207, when the third and final Qin ruler surrendered to Liu Bang, 
Three years and three months had passed. They spent centuries building the Qin state into the empire it became, and in 39 months it all fell apart. But before everything the Qin emperor and his predecessors had built came crashing down, Hu Hai, the second Qin emperor, Qin Arshir, he was going to have a field day trying out all these imperial powers that his father had enjoyed. He may have been the Qin emperor's son, but he was no Qin Shi Huang. With this inexperienced, malleable 21-year-old spoiled boy on the throne, Zhao Gao was able to quickly assume control and manipulate the levers of power. Qin Arshir was happy just to hang in the palace and sample all his deceased father's perks and let Zhao Gao run the empire. And if there was one thing Qin Arshir didn't like to hear, it was bad news. Many officials and messengers were put to death if they had anything less than positive or encouraging news to report. These times under the first Qin emperor were terribly harsh and unpleasant. Sima Qian makes that abundantly clear in the record of the Grand Historian. But it seemed as long as this tyrant, with all his accomplishments, powers, and ways to get you, sat in his palace, no one dared to do anything that might be perceived as disloyal. So draconian and strict were the laws in Qin society, there was little, if anything, anyone could do except keep their grumbling to themselves and stick with the program. You had to do your 12 years of hard labor and submit to all this state interference in their life, and that's all there was to it. But that tyrannical emperor was now gone, and it was as if the people of Qin and the people of all the conquered warring states, plus in Sichuan and all the Lingnan region, they had this itch to rise up, regurgitate, and spit out this bitter pill that they had been forced to swallow for over a decade. The imperial court in Xianyang was completely dysfunctional with all these little men trying to walk around in these massive shoes. Yeah, the Qin dynasty started to die fast. The first nail in the coffin was the Dazi Xiang uprising, July to December in the year 209 BC. The stars of this great bit of historical theater were Chen Sheng, also known as Chen She, and Wu Guang. You all know this story. They were a couple of Qin soldiers sent to defend a certain town, and due to bad weather, they ended up getting bogged down, and they missed their recon date with their battalion. And according to the legalist handbook, the penalty for this particular type of insubordination was death. So these two, Chen Sheng and Wu Guang... They put their heads together and decided they may as well just blow this whole thing off. And then taking stock of their situation and the situation in Xianyang with the emperor now gone and all, they went and made a big deal about what everyone sort of already knew, that Hu Hai had usurped the throne from Fu Su and that this second Qin emperor was behind the treachery that took the lives of the crown prince Fu Su and General Meng Tian. Chen Sheng and Wu Guang easily rallied forces to their side, and they went around stirring things up, and they carried the banner of the revived Chu state. And it didn't take long for Chen Sheng to declare himself the new king of Chu. Despite all their grandiose plans, the whole Dazi Xiang uprising was a flash in the pan. Flash in the pan, though it was, news of the uprising spread fast, and similar uprisings started popping up everywhere. And from all this confusion, disunity, and fighting arose two great heroes from Chinese antiquity, 
Liu Bang, and Xiang Yu. But before they arrive on the scene, the Qin still had two more years of slow death to endure. Right after the Dazi Xiang uprising, Zhao Gao turned on his co-conspirator and former counselor to Qin Shi Huang Li Si. He had Li Si tortured, tried, and convicted on some trumped-up charges. And the man behind the man who created and built many of these lasting legacies of the Qin was sentenced to the Wu Xing, the five pains or punishment, tattooing the face, nose cut off, foot cut off, private parts cut off, and then the fifth pain for Li Su was the old Yao Zhan, cut in half at the waist. Nothing more they could do after that. By 207 BC, the empire was officially up for grabs. Qin Arshur's general orders were, if you don't have any good news to tell me, don't make an appointment. So he sat out the rebellions and uprisings. Finally, when he woke up and realized he was about to lose everything, Qin Arshur saw he had allowed Zhao Gao to usurp his powers and authority and use them to launch a reign of terror against any suspected political enemies. Well, what else could Zhao Gao do at a time like this except have the emperor murdered? Sima Qian called Hu Hai's ending a forced suicide. Next in line to the Qin throne was Zi Ying, who lasted all of 46 days before he gave it all up and reduced his title from emperor to king of Qin. But five days into his reign, this third emperor, Zi Ying, did the right thing and had Zhao Gao executed. But it was too little too late. The damage had already been done. Being Ru Gao Huang, as the old Chinese saying went, covered in the CSP episode 2 from season 5, it was going to be all over by the end of 207, after the Battle of Julu. That was where Xiang Yu defeated a massive Qin army of 300,000 men, which resulted in 200,000 killed in battle and 200,000 Qin soldiers buried alive somewhere halfway between Luoyang and Sanmenxia. As I said, despite going down to defeat to the Qin in 223 BC, the people of Chu, down in Hubei Hunan, their spirit was never broken. So when things began to fall apart for the Qin, it was only natural that the vanquished Chu kingdom would rise again, and it was Xiang Yu who became their leader. And his story was told in CHP episode 91. That was it. The Ying family of the mighty Qin state and Qin dynasty were never going to bounce back from the Battle of Julu. 46 days into this third Qin emperor's reign, he surrendered to the forces led by the great Liu Bang, and it would be lucky Liu Bang who would ultimately face down Xiang Yu and found the Han dynasty. Once Zi Ying surrendered to Liu Bang, the Qin dynasty officially ends there. Then the following year in 206, Xiang Yu sacked and captured the Qin capital of Xianyang, and when Xianyang was under attack and the call for help was sent to Qin armies in the south, they didn't even bother to answer. And let me just add, more books got burned when Xiang Yu torched the imperial library than anything Li Si and Qin Shi Huang burned during their campaign from seven years before. And prisoners of Qin were promised their freedom in return for their labors to rush the completion of the emperor's tomb. It wasn't even ready when he died. So, 206 BC, the Qin dynasty officially ends. But it was pretty much all over for them once the founder died. China got split apart again, but only for seven years. And down in the south, 
And this is all detailed in the History of Guangzhou and the History of China-Vietnam Relations series. The Qin military commander down there, operating out of the Nanhai commandery in Guangdong, decided with the demise of the Qin, the timing was going to be right to declare the founding of the Nanyue Kingdom. So in 204 BC, this great hero from Lingnan history, Zhao Tuo, took control and led the people of this area, mainly Guangxi, Guangdong, Hainan, and northern Vietnam. What are we to make of this first emperor of China? From his name, we supposedly get the word China. He's not here to defend himself, and there are no surviving records that give a clear and definitive background about who he was. We have Sima Qian, which is a start. We also have the Liu Shi Chunqiu, the spring and autumn annals of Master Liu. This highly regarded ancient book written by Liu Bu Wei provides a lot of insight into Qin society and the rules that everyone had to live by. And there's also everything that archaeologists and historians have dug up and analyzed, including the mausoleum complex that's still under excavation to this very day. Tombs of Qin nobles are discovered from time to time, some quite revealing as far as a window into those times. The legacy that Qin left behind for the Chinese people served them well for a couple thousand years with each successive dynasty. Greater achievements were built on top of previous ones. But you had to start somewhere. Before the house gets built, you need to dig a foundation. And that's what the Qin did. Basic things we in our day take for granted, a national infrastructure, laws, standardization of weights and measures and currency, a civil bureaucracy, were built first by the Qin. They provided a model for national and civil administration and for collecting taxes. No one needed the nobles to do this for them anymore. With regard to water management and agricultural control, they did many great things, and we looked at a few of them. They taught everyone who followed them in China history how to standardize and mass-produce weapons. And the Qin state could very well be credited with creating the world's first permanent arms industry. They introduced military fighting techniques utilizing mass infantry and cavalry. And in a day with no walkie-talkies, they introduced a whole system of communication and, and how to control troops on the battlefield using horns and drums and flags. It was primitive, but it worked. Their ambitious civil engineering and building projects were models for dynasties to come. Some provided great benefits to the country and the people, and some, like the first emperor's mausoleum and his pleasure parks and palaces— were historic wastes of public funds. You know, the whole organizing principle of the Qin state was for war. The direct administration of all the peasants right down to the household was based on mobilizing everyone for battle. For almost the entirety of the Eastern Zhou period, there was no dearth of opportunities for military conquest. But now, after 221 BC, and especially after the North and South were pacified, with no wars to fight, you still had to keep the peasants busy and call for mandatory labor and military service. Let me quote Stanford professor Mark Edward Lewis from his book, The Early Chinese Empires, Qin and Han. Quote, 
To occupy these conscripts, the Qin state engaged in an orgy of expansion and building that had little logic except employing warring states' institutions that had been rendered obsolete by their own success. Armies were launched on massive, pointless expeditions to the south, north, and northeast. Colossal projects to construct roads, a new capital, and the first emperor's tomb were initiated. Laborers were dispatched to the northern frontier to link old defenses into the first Great Wall. A state created for warfare and expansion, Qin wasted its strength and alienated its newly conquered people by fighting and expanding when there were no useful worlds left to conquer. Mutinies by labor gangs led to a general rebellion of Qin officers and people against their rulers, and the first Chinese empire went down in flames only 15 years after it was created. End quote. They standardized weights and measures and introduced the iconic Banliang Qian, the round copper coin with the square hole in the middle. And that sure had staying power, lasting well into the Qing dynasty. And as the name suggested, it was worth Ban Liang, or half a Liang, 16 Liang equaled one Jin, and from this we get the old Chinese term Ban Jin Ba Liang, half of a Jin or eight Liang, Chinese version of our English, six of one and half dozen of the other. And last but not least, and we have Li Su to thank for this more than anyone else, the Qin dynasty left behind the small seal script form of writing. And as I mentioned last episode, during the Eastern Zhou, the writing styles from state to state varied somewhat, and there was no one single Chinese script that worked wherever you went. The small seal script style of writing, though it appears a little ancient, didn't change that much in about 2,000 years. Even I could read many of the characters, and the ones I can't read are at least somewhat recognizable. And this one single script that was implemented throughout the land truly worked wonders in unifying the nation. Already it was a nation comprised of hundreds of dialects, and to have one single writing system that worked in the north, south, east, and west was truly a great and long-lasting achievement. So I guess that's the grand irony of the Qin dynasty. They themselves weren't long-lasting, but the innovations that happened during their watch were indeed quite long-lasting. You all recall from CHP episode 18 on the Western Han, when they took over, they pretty much kept the Qin system as the foundation that they built their magnificent bureaucracy on. So that's going to be about it. No need to discuss the Qin Emperor's mausoleum. Go visit it for yourselves in the tourist paradise of Xi'an. That's what most people remember the first emperor for. He's the one who united China into one nation and set the tone for how dynasties were managed for the rest of imperial Chinese history. All right, that's going to be it. This is Laszlo Montgomery on behalf of the whole team of researchers here, writers, interns, editors, and, well, everyone, even good old Gum Jie who, who brings the milk tea at 3 p.m. Thank you for listening, and I truly hope you'll consider joining us again next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.